The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. Please take your Bibles and open to Genesis chapter 11. This is our second to last sermon in Genesis. Uh, doesn't mean that there's not more to study. There's always more to study. Uh, but we're going to be moving as we prepare for Christmas into Isaiah uh, after, not next week, but the week after. Today, as we look at Genesis chapter 11, we come to a story of blessings gone bad, of blessings that God has given to the human race, turned against him in rebellion against him, and how God sovereignly worked out his plan and his purpose by interfering in human history, and what a message of comfort that is to us who trust in him. It's a story of the building up of the city of man in rebellion and defiance against God, and yet, in the midst of all of that, the building of the city of God through that godly line of Shem, ultimately through Abram, down to Jesus Christ. A tale of two cities is before us today. Listen to the words of Scripture. Genesis chapter 11. Now, the whole world had one language and a common speech. As men moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, Come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens, so that we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower that men were building. The Lord said, If as one people, speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there all over the earth, and they stopped building the city. That is why it was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there, the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. Verse 10. This is the account of Shem. Two years after the flood, when Shem was 100 years old, he became the father of Arphaxad. After he became the father of Arphaxad, Shem lived 500 years and had other sons and daughters. When Arphaxad had lived 35 years, he became the father of Shelah. After he became the father of Shelah, Arphaxad lived 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Shelah had lived 30 years, he became the father of Eber. And after he became the father of Eber, Shelah lived 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Eber had lived 34 years, he became the father of Peleg. And after he became the father of Peleg, Eber lived 430 years and had other sons and daughters. When Peleg had lived 30 years, he became the father of Ru. And after he became the father of Ru, Peleg lived 209 years and had other sons and daughters. When Ru had lived 32 years, he became the father of Serug. And after he became the father of Serug, Ru lived 207 years and had other sons and daughters. When Serug had lived 30, 30 years, he became the father of Nahor. And after he became the father of Nahor, Serug lived 200 years and had other sons and daughters. When Nahor had lived 29 years, he became the father of Terah. And after he became the father of Terah, Nahor lived 119 years and had other sons and daughters. After Terah had lived 70 years, he became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. This is the account of Terah. Terah became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Haran became the father of Lot. 
While his father Terah was still alive, Haran died in Ur of the Chaldeans in the land of his birth. Abram and Nahor both married. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah. She was the daughter of Haran, the father of both Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no children. Terah took his son Abram, his grandson Lot, son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, the wife of his son Abram, and together they set out from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. Terah lived 205 years, and he died in Haran. Now, as we look at the beginning section of this, the Tower of Babel, this may be a common story or familiar story to you, but as I've looked at it this week and looked at this text, I've seen that it really is the story of blessings gone bad, blessings which God had given to the human race. I'm talking about the blessings of language and of ingenuity, the blessings of language and ingenuity. Now, in my research this week, I found out that there are 6,858 languages in the world. I only know one. I've studied eight or nine of them, and I only know one. How is it you can study eight or nine languages and only know one? Just ask me. It's a difficult thing to acquire language. It's especially hard for we Americans. We don't really see the need, do we? But the fact of the matter is there are almost 7,000 languages in the world, and they are a marvel of God's creation, a gift of uh, the image of God in humanity. And they are a reflection of his desire to communicate. God is a God of communication. He is a God who communicates to us through the Word. And so intimately is He connected with this that He was willing that the second person of the Trinity, the Son, be associated with the word, Word. For it says in John 1.1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In verse 14, And the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. God associates Himself with communication. And Jesus is to us, truly, the final Word from God, communication to a sinful human race. Now, in all the animal kingdom, there is nothing like human speech. Nothing. As I was looking through this, I found that the only thing that was close somewhat to the kind of communication that we take for granted every day is a certain dance that bees do to identify the location of nectar. So one bee which has found some nectar comes and does a certain movement or motion. And as far as we know, the only topic of that communication is the location and quantity of the nectar. But human speech is not limited in any way, shape, or form. We can talk about anything. We can talk about our passions and our feelings, our plans and desires. We can talk about God. We can talk about the future. It's truly a gift from God. And it is one of those many things that separates us from the rest of creation. But here in this story, we see it's a a blessing gone bad, where the mouth, the tongue, is used to incite evil. Come, let us disobey God. Come, let us do this or that. And so language, a blessing gone bad. We also see human ingenuity, inventiveness, creativity. Could we even say technology? A blessing from God, but gone bad here in this story. Now, I don't know if you know this, but a hundred years ago, in 1899, the director of the United States Patent Office uh, petitioned the government that they shut down his own office because he had come to the conclusion that everything that could be invented had already been invented, and there was no need any longer for the patent office. Can you imagine that? That was in 1899. The 20th century has seen an explosion of human ingenuity and inventiveness, and not a a few of those inventions have, have centered on communication. This is really a communication and transportation era these hundred years, getting people together, moving them in one direction so that we're able to associate, we're able to work together. Somewhat a reversal of what happened here in the Tower of Babel. 
But I looked through the patents of the first 50 years of the 20th century. I gave the guy the benefit of the doubt. I figured he could have at least seen that. No way he could imagine what happened with computers and electronics and transistors in the second half of the century. But maybe he could have seen what was coming around the corner. In the year 1900, for example, the photocopy machine was invented. 1903, we saw the airplane. 1907, the electric vacuum cleaner. And aren't you glad for that? The electric vacuum cleaner. An electric washing machine also that same year. 1911, we had air conditioning and the automobile self-starter. Do you know what I mean by the automobile self-starter? Perhaps you just take it for granted. You get in your car and you turn the key. Well, it wasn't always that way. It used to be you had to turn a crank at the beginning, at the front of the, the car. Can you imagine doing that on a cold day? It's hard enough to start a car on a cold day. In 1913, the refrigerator was invented. In 1913, also talking motion pictures. I'm not sure whether that's good or not, but they were invented in 1913. 1923, again, television, the first form of television was invented. 1926, a liquid fuel rocket. In 1930, shortly thereafter, jet propulsion, a jet propulsion engine. 1938, the automatic clothes dryer. So there was a big gap between the automatic washing machine and the clothes dryer. They just hung them out to dry all that time. But finally, somebody invented the, the clothes dryer. 1942, the nuclear reactor. And then 1943, the artificial kidney machine. And then on into 1953, the heart-lung machine. Tremendous advances of technology in the 20th century. And it's accelerating, too. It's going faster and faster. Do you know why? Because people are able to communicate more. They're able to get together. There's a, a technology transfer. It's going to go faster and faster with what Bill Gates call, calls the, uh, the information superhighway. The exchange of information. The patent office, uh, United States Patent Office, uh, issues 76,000 patents every year rejects 200,000. So if you have an idea for an invention, you better have your ducks in a row. It takes an awfully long time to get a patent. It's very difficult to do. But human inventiveness is really one of the major stories of the 20th century. But so also the use of human evil of that inventiveness. It's been an evil century, hasn't it, as we look back over the last hundred years. Terrible tragedies. World War I and World War II and other wars, wars besides. The advent of thermonuclear devices, weapons of mass destruction. And then just the propagation of evil throughout our society. We've seen it. And it's been technologically enhanced, hasn't it? We're able through the media and through you know, radio and television, newspapers, and also through, um, through the Internet and other things to find out very quickly about evil things that other people are doing. And so you get copycat killings or other things. It's just a, a pervasive uh, spread of evil through this technology. It's a tragic thing. And yet, as we look at that, we have to look at this message and see that our God is sovereign over all of that. He is an interfering God. He's not just letting it happen up in heaven, but He's going to come down and He's going to affect it and He's going to interfere for His holy purposes. Look at verses 1 through 4. It says, The whole world had one language and a common speech. As men moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. And they said to each other, Come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. Now, the first thing we see here is the power of human cooperation. I think other than the power of God, there may be no force on earth as powerful as human beings working together. And that's power for good or for evil, isn't it? Every major, uh, every major empire in the world, whether from the Roman empires right on through the Nazis, have shown the power for evil of human cooperation, the power to dominate. When I was in Kenya, I was introduced to a species of ant called the safari ant. Safari is a Swahili word which means travel or journey. And so these ants, they had no home, they just traveled around. And they were remarkable and ingenious creations of God. They worked together in an amazing way. They are able to cross small rivers. 
by making an ant bridge with their own bodies. They make a cantilever bridge and then they, they're able even to get every single ant across this way through their strength and through their knowledge uh, somehow of technology. The power of cooperation. Well, how much more we who are created in the image of God, when we come together and say, come, let's do this, for good or evil, a tremendous force. And we see the power of human cooperation here. Positively, there is no power on earth as powerful for good as the body of Christ indwelt by the Holy Spirit. We are the ones who work together under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit with our spiritual gifts. We come together as a body and we accomplish God's work in this world. Tremendous power for good, but also in here in the story of Tower of Babel, power for evil. And that's because these people are motivated by their own pride, their own glory, building something which does not glorify God. Second thing we see here is the pride of human technology. Created in the image of God, we have inventive, restless, creative minds. We're always thinking, we're always imagining, thinking of new things. And that's part of the image of God. And that very image of God, which was committed to us at creation, has been defaced and twisted through sin. We see evidence of it here. Steady advance of technology makes new expressions of sin possible. And so they say, hey, we've got a new technology here. If you bake the bricks thoroughly through, dry them out, they don't crumble as much. They're stronger. And so we can build higher, you see? You've got stronger bricks, and if you coat them with pitch, you know, they're protected from the elements. And so we now have the technology to build a high tower. And so the advance of technology makes the spread of evil a little bit easier. Human inventiveness immediately leads to human pride. Thirdly, we see here the pollution of, of human rebellion. Now, what is the plan in the making of this tower? They're making a city, first, first and foremost. This is the foundation of Babylon, this plain of Shinar. All the people were together. They had one common language, one common speech. They're able to work together. Remember what I told you last week. The table of nations in Genesis 10 and all the descendants of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, they spread out, but each one had their own common language, their own common culture. So this is actually backtracking a little bit here in chapter 11 to explain how those languages and cultures came about. And so what is the motive of these people as they build their city? They want to build a city, and their motive is twofold. Positively, in, in other words, their intention is to glorify themselves. Not positive at all, but that's what they're intending to do. They want to glorify themselves. In verse 4 it says, Let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens. Why? So that we may make a name for ourselves. Now, we've seen this before, right before the flood. I don't know if you remember this, but in Genesis 6-4, in Hebrew, it talks about men of the name. Men of the name. It doesn't come across in any English translation, sadly. It says men of great reputation or men of renown. But they were really men who lived for their own glory. This is right before the flood. And when you get a, a, a whole world of people living for themselves, living for their own glory, using the cooperation, the power of cooperation, of language, of technology, to glorify themselves, we have a terrible problem. And that's what led to the flood of, uh, uh, of Noah. God needed to sweep that evil away. And so we've seen this before. People have a natural tendency to worship themselves, to make a name for themselves. And that was their motive. They wanted to, to glorify themselves. And that was the motive of their city and certainly of their tower. The negative motive was that they didn't want to be scattered over the surface of the earth. That we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the earth. Well, wasn't it God's plan to spread them over the face of the earth? That was his intention. From the very beginning, God said, and uh, He commanded Adam, and then certainly He, he recommanded Noah after Noah stepped off the ark. Genesis 9:1. Then God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, "Be fruitful and increase in number, and fill the earth." That was their command. 
And that verse that by now many of you may have memorized, Habakkuk 2.14. Why? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The image of God spread all over the globe. Intelligent, creative beings able to see His glory, able to see what He's done spreading over the whole earth. That's what God wanted. And they didn't want to do it. They said, we don't want to be spread. We want to stay right here where we are and have our own civilization, our own our own community apart from God's plan. Now, when did this occur? We don't really know. There's nothing in the actual text that tells us when it occurred. Genesis 10.25 may give us a little bit of a hint uh, when it says that uh, the earth was divided. The earth was divided in Peleg's day. So if you could kind of figure out when Peleg lived, uh, perhaps you have an indication when the, when the Tower of Babel occurred. Perhaps maybe 300 years after the flood, but we're not really sure. Now, what are the theological issues to the building of this city and the building of this tower? First is the sense of the evil city, or we could say the city of man. When human beings, apart from the indwelling Holy Spirit, come together and bring their creativity, their cooperation together, evil results. And so we get the evil city, the city of man. And this really symbolizes the whole human history, doesn't it? You know, the, the cooperation technology working together, apart from God, for self-glorification, the building of the city of man. And that tower, some think it was a ziggurat, this kind of Babylonian kind of tower like a pyramid reaching up like that, was a symbol of human pride, self-glorification, and also self-effort. We want to build a tower that will reach up to heaven, somewhat of a stairway to heaven, where as you build each brick step by step, you can work your way up to heaven. So there's real pride in this. I tried to get on the Internet and find out which city had the tallest tower you know, tallest structure these days. You know, actually, two cities are claiming it. And I thought that was very interesting. You know, they're saying, no, no, it's not that tower. We have the tallest tower. Toronto, right? The CN Tower in Toronto. Chicago has its claim with the Sears Tower. I don't know if you saw in USA Today about two or three weeks ago, there are plans on the books to reclaim that title from the Petronas Tower in Kuala Lumpur, which apparently is the tallest uh, at 1,850 feet. Chicago wants to be number one. And so they're going to build a skyscraper taller than any skyscraper. How long will they hold the title? Who knows? Maybe until somebody else hears about it and wants to build it. What is this? It's self-glorification. Our city has the tallest tower. It's the way it's been uh, since Genesis 11. To make a name for ourselves. It really is rooted back with the original sin. What was it that motivated Eve? She wanted to be wise like God. It's a form of self-worship. And then we had those evil tyrant rulers in Genesis 6, heroes of old, men of the name, who wanted to make a reputation for themselves. But it's mostly like Satan. It's mostly like the devil. What is it that he said to Jesus? I'll give you the entire world if you'll simply bow down and worship me. Just bow down and worship me and I'll give it all to you. In Isaiah 14, verse 12 and following, this is said, many interpreters believe this is speaking directly to Satan. How you have fallen from heaven, O morning star, son of the dawn. You have been cast down to the earth, you who once laid low the nations. You said in your heart, now think about, about Babel in this. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly on the utmost heights of the sacred mountain. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. They're acting like their father, the devil. This is exactly what he wanted, self-worship, elevating themselves, forgetting about God. But it says in Isaiah 14, 15, but you are brought down to the grave, to the depths of the pit. Fourth element we see here is the products of human imagination. 
Verse 6, God says, If as one people, speaking the same language, they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. God knew what He put in us. He knew what kind of ingenuity, what kind of creativity, that we're able to find out amazing things about the world that He has, that he has laid around us. Even at the point of researching our very selves, the, the genetic order and the, and the brain to study things, and then looking outwards. He knew what He put in us. And so he was saying, if as one people speak in one language, they have begun to do this, nothing they plan to do will be impossible for us. Human ingenuity, the ability to imagine something, even though it doesn't exist yet, to imagine it and then bring it about. It's very godlike, and we are created in the image of God, but it is less than the power of God. Because everything that God plans, he accomplishes. Everything that God sets out to do, he determines to do and he accomplishes. Romans 4.17, it says that God gives life to the dead and calls things that are not as though they were. God has that kind of power. also says in Isaiah 46.11, What I have said, that will I bring about. What I have planned, that will I do. That is God. He imagines, he plans, and then he executes the plan. <laughs> but he also rules over our planning, doesn't he? Proverbs 19.21, many are the plans of a man's heart, but it is the Lord's purpose that prevails. Don't we see that here? They were making a plan. They were going to raise a tower up to heaven, but God said, no, it won't happen. And it didn't happen. And God interfered. Our God is a sovereign God who rules over the minutest details of human history for his plans. We could therefore say our God is an interfering God, and isn't it a good thing that he is? Isn't it a good thing that he doesn't just sit up in heaven and let it happen? But he interferes. In verses 5 through 9, you see the interfering. The Lord descends in verse 5. The Lord came down to see the city. You know, it's funny how liberals pick up and they say, oh, this anthropomorphic language, you know, it's just a myth. No, it isn't. This, this verse is our humiliation. People, perhaps you hadn't even noticed. God has to come down to see how far they've come up. You see? I've got to go all the way down to see the progress you've made. He's humbling us. You don't realize how far you have to travel. It's a long, long way to where I am. And you're not going to do it by baking bricks thoroughly and putting pitch on them. God had to come down to see it. You know, Solomon knew this. He said, will God really dwell on earth with men? Heaven, even the highest heavens, can't contain him. Neither this little temple that I built. Solomon knew that. Well, let's think about heaven, even the highest heavens. You say, okay, that was ancient technology. You know, we've come a long way now. We've come a long way. We can lift ourselves off the surface of the earth and we can go to the moon. Have you ever said this? You know, if we can put a man on the moon, we, can, we should be able to do such and such, right? The pinnacle of human technology. Well, around 1972, some researchers launched Pioneer 10. Pioneer 10 moved through the solar system was the first man-made object to exit the solar system. That's quite an achievement. So we're much higher up now than the Tower of Babel. We've come a long way, haven't we? Do you know how long it took Pioneer 10 to leave the solar system? Eleven and a half years. Well, I decided to figure out how long it would take at that rate to reach the nearest star. The nearest star, mind you, not the farthest star, the nearest one. Alpha Centauri, 4.3 light years away. Well, as you do the math, you figure it all out. It's 80,000 years. It would take 80,000 years at that rate to reach the nearest star. So you say, well, we've come a long way since 1972. What if we take the, the state-of-the-art technology and see how long it would take then? Well, there's something called a nuclear thermal rocket. That sounds powerful, doesn't it? A nuclear thermal rocket can get you to Mars in 90 days. That's pretty good. 90 days to Mars. Seven miles per second it travels. 
At that rate, it would take seven minutes to cross the United States, continental U.S. Slowing down would be a, a terrible pain. I mean, <laughs> accelerating and the slowing down, you better have your seatbelts on. But at seven miles a second, it's only a seven-minute trip. Okay? All right, then, at seven miles a second, how long would it take to reach the nearest star? Mind you, not the farthest. Only 11,500 years. God is humbling us. He's saying, you can't reach me through your own efforts. Heaven, even the highest heavens can't contain me. God was humbling them. He came down to see this puny little tower they were making. Do you know, God frequently uses this exaltation language to speak of himself. Isaiah 6, 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on his throne, high and lifted up. Why does he use that kind of... So that we know who he is and who we are. We're so vaunting in our pride all the time. We need this lesson. Isaiah 40, verse 22 says, He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth and its people before him are like grasshoppers. Why does he do that? We need it done. We need to hear this message. We're so prideful. We need to understand just how powerful God is. What was the last thing Jesus did in his first trip to earth? The last thing he did. He gathered his disciples together on the Mount of Olives, gave them some final words, and then he ascended. He ascended before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. Why did he do that? Is heaven up? Heaven is a spiritual place, but he wants to give us a sense of his exaltation and of our weakness, our lowliness. And by his grace, God has promised to exalt us with him. If we'll just humble ourselves, if we'll just lower ourselves before him and acknowledge his greatness, his holiness, his majesty, he will exalt us. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted, said Jesus. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, First Peter, so that in due time he may exalt you, raise you up. Consistent message. He said the same thing in Genesis 4. He said to Cain, if you do what is right, will you not be exalted, it says in the Hebrew. I'll lift you up if you'll just humble yourself before me. And so God has to come down to humble these arrogant people. And so the Lord comes down. In verse 6, he assesses what they're doing. Human cooperation must be thwarted. Human sin must be restrained, human imagination held in check. If as one people speaking one language they have begun to do this, nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. The Hebrew actually says nothing they imagine will be restrained from them. So we're really talking here about the restraining of evil. And so God is about the business in human society of restraining evil. He slows it down. He impedes its progress. Why? So that the city of God can get built. It's going to take a long time. There's an awful lot more said about the city of man in this chapter than the city of God. It's just a genealogy in reference to the city of God. It takes time. There's got to be an unfolding here, a history. God had it all planned out. Abram would come, and then Isaac, and Jacob, and the twelve tribes, and Egypt. The whole history. And ultimately, Jesus Christ. So he had to slow down evil. He already promised not to bring another flood on the earth, so he had to slow it down. It's very much like we, what we Christians are called to do, and we're called to be salt in society. We're the salt of the earth. Salt retards Corruption. We're supposed to slow it down, and that's what God does here. And so the Lord acts. He speaks within himself. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so that they will not understand each other. Some people think this is somewhat of a heavenly council. He's talking to the angels. I think perhaps it's an inter-Trinitarian communication. He's a communicating being within himself. Father can speak to Son. Son can speak to Spirit. Spirit can speak to Father. They've been doing that from before the foundation of the world. Our speech, our ability to communicate is a reflection, a dim reflection of his communication with himself. Come, let us do this, he says. And God decides to confuse the language. Now, how did he do that? Stop and think. Did he actually get inside our brains? 
Yeah, that's right. In one day, you were speaking a different language. You knew what you were trying to say, but your friend didn't. He's looking at you saying, saying what? I guess they spoke Hebrew. Or maybe he was now speaking Aramaic. Or maybe he was speaking Akkadian, or who knows what language he was speaking. Perhaps he didn't even know what to call his new language. Maybe he got home. Hopefully God kept husbands and wives together, you know, on the same page. The husband and the wife speaking the same language. Can you imagine how detrimental that would have been? But God had it all worked out. And so there were clans and tribes coming up around that. And so God would start to scatter and to spread the earth. He would scatter them and spread them over the surface of the earth. And it was not a willy-nilly scattering. God had a place for each nation, for each culture, for each tribe. As Paul told us last week, Acts 17, 26, from one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. He determined the time set for them, the exact places where they should live. So he had a place for each tribe and language, people and nation, and he spread them over the earth. Powerful effect on human history, the confusing of the languages. Even more powerful is the sense of our God as an interfering or a sovereign God. Around the time of the beginning of our country, there was an idea about God called deism. An idea that God just basically created the world and then just let it run. The analogy is frequently of a, of a clockmaker who made a clock and just let it run by itself. That is not biblical. Our God gets involved in history. He gets involved in your life. He gets involved in the events of your life. He's sovereign and he's, in, he's involved. A sparrow doesn't fall to the ground apart from the will of your father. And so it is. He interferes. He is the king of kings and the lord of lords. And as the king of kings, he comes in there with the movers and the shakers, and he moves and shakes them. He's the mover and the shaker here. He's the king of kings and the lord of lords. Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. He directs it like a water course, whatever direction he pleases. That's God. He's sovereign over that. And so he directs the minds, even gets involved in the way that they think and the way they speak. Now, in so doing, God made the spread of the gospel more difficult, didn't he? Do you remember Ron and Mary Halbrooks? They were in our midst just a short time ago. Do you know what they're doing now? Struggling with the effects of this chapter? Genesis 11, they're learning a language. Why? So that they can serve the Lord overseas. They're wrestling with it. And God knew what he was doing. He knew that the spread of the gospel would be difficult too. Not just the spread of evil. But God had all that worked out. He knew. And he gave servants like Ron and Mary and others who would give themselves to memorizing new words, learning new grammar so that they could communicate the gospel powerfully. On the day of Pentecost, Babel for one day was miraculously reversed when Peter would speak one message and everyone could hear them speaking in their own native language. So God had the whole thing under control. And what was in God's mind through all this? The building of the holy city. From verses 10 through 32, just a lineage, a genealogy. There's no need to go through it verse by verse, but we see the raising up of that elect line of Shem. He focuses in on Arphaxad, who was the ancestor of Jesus Christ. And we see the spreading of these people and the developing of the plan of God, the city of God. Now, as God works out his plans, culminating in the birth of Abram, and next week we're going to talk about the call of Abram, who we know as Abraham, we see the culmination of what God was intending to do in this early phase of human history. The calling out of the Jewish people and the beginning of a matrix, a community of people called the Jews, into which he would communicate in a special way, first through the prophets and finally through his son, Jesus Christ. Now, what lessons can we learn from this chapter? First of all, the dangers of human pride. 
I guess I would like to urge you, if you're doing so, to stop making bricks as some sort of a stairway to heaven. Now, we do this in a lot of different ways by thinking that we, through being good people, by praying, by coming to church on Sunday, that we somehow are building up a repertoire or a resume that gets us closer and closer to God. Nothing could be further from the truth. Stop making the bricks. Stop thinking that you, through your own righteousness, are getting any closer to heaven whatsoever. You're not. Humble yourself before the mighty hand of God. Be humbled by this. Be humbled by the fact that God has to come down from lofty highest heavens to see our puny efforts. Let that humble you. And also see the sovereign interference of God. Be confident that history is not running like a train off its tracks, running willy-nilly. God knows what He's doing. He's ruling over it sovereignly and powerfully. And God scattered the nations, but not willy-nilly. He knew what He was doing. And He's going to regather them through the ministry of the gospel, through the preaching of the gospel, the advance of the gospel through faithful people like you and me, through the preaching of the word. And we see the calling out of God's redeemed line, the elect line of Semites raising up Abram. And what was this ultimately to do? Can I suggest it was to build a true stairway to heaven? A true stairway to heaven. Later on in Genesis, Abraham's grandson, Jacob, had a dream. Do you remember the dream? And as he laid down there, he, in his dream, he saw a staircase leading all the way to heaven and angels ascending and descending on the staircase. He didn't know what the staircase was. Well, you have to find out. You, you wait until, until John chapter 1 to find out what the staircase is. Because Jesus Christ said to Nathaniel, he said, uh, you know, because I told you I saw you under fig tree, you believe? You'll see greater th things than these. He said, I tell you the truth. You'll see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Jesus is the stairway to heaven. And if you just humble yourself under God's mighty hand, acknowledge your need for a Savior, acknowledge your need that your brick-making and covering it with tar and pitch will never get you to heaven, but that there is a way provided through Jesus Christ. He will save you. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.